Good morning, High Point. Welcome to those who are here in person. Um, it's nice to have the sun back. I wish perhaps it would be a little cooler, um, but I'll take the sun over rain any day. Uh, we want to welcome those who are here and joining us in person as well, or uh, online as well. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Tom Williams, and I will be speaking today on um, the first of four sermons on the Psalms. So we finished Ephesians last week, and we're going to begin in the Psalms this week. And we'll be reading from Psalm 139 today. So if you have your Bibles um, or your Bible apps, if you have a physical Bible, Psalms is pretty much in the center of your Bible. Um, if you have a Bible app, you just push the button that says Psalms. And uh, we'll turn to those together. And um, there are 150 Psalms in Scripture, in the canon of Scripture. And about half of those were written by the author of today's Psalm, 139th Psalm, which is David, second king of Israel. Uh, David was born roughly, or lived roughly between 1035 and 961 BC, just about a thousand years before Jesus. And he's credited with, like I said, writing over half or around half of these Psalms. We don't know precisely when in David's lifetime Psalms 139 was written. Um, but David, if you haven't read First and Second Samuel, I, I would recommend reading that. Uh, David's life was an incredible life. Um, makes a great movie. But David lived a life that was full of danger, um, full of great blessing from God, but also great loss. And in all of those experiences that David lived through, he was always connected with God, for the most part. David was a sinner just like all of us are. But the point is that in all of David's experiences that he went through, God drew David to himself. God revealed himself to David. And David in this psalm is essentially declaring, God, this is who you are. This is who I believe you are. And we see how David responds. In the, in the end of this psalm, we see David's summary or final response to who he believes God is. And I think it's important that as we go through this, um, each of us needs to consider what is it that we believe about God? What do we believe to be true about God? Because that will dictate how we face disappointment, trials, tribulations. Each person here is going through something that's most likely difficult or knows someone who's going through maybe the toughest time in their life. And as David did, God was there revealing himself to him, sometimes admonishing David, but also lifting David up. And that's what we see here in this section of scripture with David. So we're going to read all 24 verses um, to start, and then we'll just go through and kind of unpack this. Um, so let's start verse 1 here. Lord, you've searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels and my rest. You are aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You've encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It is lofty. 
I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I fly on the wings of the dawn and settle down on the western horizon, even there your hand will lead me, your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous, and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was made in secret. When I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me, how vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I'm still with you. God, if only you would kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men stay away from me, who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. So David is describing essentially three of God's attributes. And so I want to go through those individually. And then I want to talk a little bit about what I think is the proper response for someone who knows God, who has submitted their life to Christ, the proper response to God revealing to him just exactly who he is. And the first one is um, that God is omniscient, right? God has all knowledge. And God's knowledge is not like our knowledge. Um, my older brother, David, knows everything. My younger brother, Stephen, thinks he knows everything. But David has always been uh, a wealth of knowledge for me. The gentleman who was up here last Sunday speaking, Chris Bernard, he's probably the smartest guy that I know. But Chris Bernard doesn't know everything. And he'd be the second person to tell you that. The first person would be Mary, his wife. <laughs> no, Chris is very humble, and he wouldn't like me bringing him into this. But our knowledge is not like God's. Our knowledge is in all ways and always obtained through learning. We learn from a young age. I've been a grandfather for eight months now, and Brad and I were just talking about this. It seems like every time Asa comes over, he's learned something new, or right in front of me is learning something new. And that's how it was for all of us. From a young age, we learn and we learn. We accumulate knowledge, some of us more than others. Um, but our knowledge is different than God's. God's knowledge is infinite in its existence. God doesn't learn. God doesn't discover anything new. God's knowledge has existed for all eternity, just as God has. There's no beginning. There's no end to his knowledge. It is infinite in its existence, but it is also infinite in scope. God knows everything about everything, always. And it's always been that way. David's describing God's knowledge, if we see this. 
And we will see a pattern in David. All of attributes, all of God's attributes, David, um, he explains or describes them as they impact him as a person. He could talk about God's knowledge of, you know, the existence of aliens and, and all this, right? But he doesn't. He talks about God's knowledge of him. And he's describing everyday activity, right? When I sit down, when I stand up, when I'm traveling, when I'm at rest, it really encompasses anything and everything that you could do as a human being. My thoughts are known. My words are known. There's nothing about any one of us that's not fully, infinitely known by God. So that's one of the ways that it's different. But we also see that God's, God's knowledge is infinite, but it's also intimate. It's intimate and personal. So David uses the word just in beginning this. He says, Lord. Now, Lord can also be translated as Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. This is how David relates to God in all ways. God is a personal God, and David has this personal relationship and understanding of God. And the Hebrew, Hebrew word for known there, uh, it goes beyond just an intellectual, factual knowledge of something or someone. It's an intimate knowledge. And then even the term where he says, you've searched me. Well, we've already established that God doesn't search in order to discover something new. But this is a picture of God. The word used here is pictures digging into the earth as though to discover something. And so it's really a picture of God digging into the very depths of our soul and knowing everything that there is to know about us. And then if we look at verse 5, here again, David, personalizing God's knowledge of him, says, you've encircled me. Some translations are, you've hemmed me in. You're, you, are, I'm bef you are before me and behind me. There's this picture of God's protection in his knowledge of us. And you've placed your hand on me. Certainly, that is also a picture of God's protection and God's blessing. And David sees all of this coming out of God's infinite knowledge. So think about what you believe to be true about the knowledge of God, and how do you respond to that knowledge? I'm just going to give a few, I think, practical ideas. First of all, we need to, <laughs> we need to take care of what we think, say, and do, right? Because God knows all of it. Every thought you've ever had every thought you will ever have, what you're thinking about right now, are you paying attention to what I'm saying right now? God knows every single one of our thoughts and we need to be careful and practice what we're thinking about. And I think Paul in Philippians 4.8, where he recommends how the best way for us to think, I think he's doing this in part because he knows God knows his thoughts and he knows all our thoughts. And Paul says, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And that takes practice, and it takes an intentionality on our part, because we are constantly being drawn to be thinking about the other stuff, the things of the world. Chris talked about this last week, talking about that battle, right, between our flesh, between the world, and God. 
And that's part of it. What is it that we're thinking about? So take care of what we think and take care of what we say. God knows our words before their words. I think, and I'm speaking to Christ followers here, I think the tendency is to be a little too cavalier with what we say, with our words. Although we're thinking, um, as long as I'm not taking the Lord's name in vain, I mean, what really does it matter what I say? And that's not really true. That's certainly not what scripture, or scripture plays out here. James 3, 9 through 10 says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. In Ephesians 4, 29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Our words matter. God knows our thoughts. God knows our words, and they matter to him. And so, therefore, they should matter to us. We also need to take care of what we do. So take care of what we think. Take care of what we say. And if we take care of what we think about, that trickles down to what we say. And it also trickles down to what we do. What are our actions? How are we treating one another? And how are we treating others? So I think in a practical way, that's what should come out of our knowledge and understanding of God's omniscience. But also, we should recognize and be thankful for the guidance and direction that comes from God's knowledge of us. God knows what is best for us. Now, we have a tendency to think that we know what's best for us. And especially when we're going through hard times, um, that hardly ever feels like that's what's for our good, right? When you're going through a trial, when you're, you're, uh, you lost your job, or you have an illness, um, things that there's people in here right now that are facing, it doesn't feel like it's for our best. But God knows what is best for us. In Romans 8.28, it says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And the key phrase, I think, in there is not so much that God works all things for the good, but it's who is it that he's working that for. It's for those who love him. He's distinguishing between those who love God and those who are enemies with God. And the promise is to those who love God. God knows what's best for us, and God knows what we need. He knows what we need, and he provides for what we need. We don't always agree with God what we need, right? Sometimes we confuse our desires with what we truly need, but God knows what we need. Matthew 6, 31 through 33, Jesus says this, so do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Being thankful and grateful that God's knowledge protects, it guides, and it knows what we need and what's best for us. And then lastly, we need to be thankful for God's mercy. Look, God, knowing every single deep, dark secret that we have, every sin we've ever committed or will commit, God's 
knowledge of us is linked with his mercy. It's linked with his love and his grace. And so even though he knows everything about us, he still wants us to be a member of his family. Kevin likes to throw that phrase around, right? If I, if I knew what you were thinking, I wouldn't let you in here. But if you knew what I was thinking, you wouldn't, you wouldn't even want to be here. That's not the way it is with God. God knows it already. He knows what we're thinking. He knows the sins that we've committed. And God wants us to have a relationship with us, so much so that he sent his son to die for us. Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the greatest act of love and mercy that God could ever show us. So God is omniscient, and our response to that will explain or tell a lot about what we actually truly believe about God. David moves on, though. David moves on and starts talking about the presence of God, that God is omnipresent, right? Which just is God's present everywhere at all times. That's what that means. But it's not as though God um, being with us is following us around as we move throughout our day, right? That's not the way it works. God fills all space and time, he, but he's not bound by either space or time. He created space and time, and, and he then fills all space and time. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, in trying to explain to these Gentiles uh, who this unknown God is that they worship. They're a polytheistic society, and they worship multiple gods, and they have this idol set up for an unknown God. And Paul is trying to explain who this God is. And he says in Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. We are in Christ. We are in God. And that's why God is always present wherever we are. And so since he's everywhere at all times, he is with us. He's present with us no matter where we are, no matter when we are. But God's presence is not the same with every person. Just like his knowledge and him working things out for the good of those who love him, his presence is different between those who love God and obey God, serve God, have submitted their life to God, and those who reject God, who are too proud, who won't bend the knee. It's different. James 4, 6 says this, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's pretty clear. And so as a Christ follower, we need to understand that God is always with us and we shouldn't fear, we shouldn't worry, we shouldn't, in those times of hopelessness, we should remember that. But also, once again, just like God's knowledge protected David, and guided David, he says the same thing about his presence. In verse uh, 10, he's describing God in heaven, and he's describing God in Sheol, which is the place of the dead. And 
as far east as you can go and as far as west as you can go, whether it's light or dark. So we have, we've covered all time and space. God's there. And David says, even there, your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold me. David recognizes that God's knowledge and his presence serves a purpose in his life as an individual. And so how do we respond to that? How do we respond to God's omnipresence? Sorry. Well, you should take comfort that you're never alone, right? And don't fear. Easier said than done, I know. But we shouldn't ever think that we're alone. Satan wants us to feel alone. He wants us to feel alone in our shame, our guilt, our sin, our failures. That's right where he believes he can do the most damage. But God says, I'm always there. And it's the truth. What do you believe about that? So take comfort that you're never alone. Take warning that you're never alone too, right? And always seek to obey God. God is always there. God is always watching, not in a creepy way, in a loving way, right? Not in a way trying to look and see when we trip up so he can call us on it. That's not the way God's presence works in the life of the Christ follower. He's there to help us and to help us and lead us into obedience to him. We can't hide our sin from God, right? What did Adam and Eve do when they sinned and they recognized? They, they tried to hide from God. What did Jonah do when he didn't want to do what God wanted him to do? He fled, and it's an impossibility. So take comfort you're never alone, but take warning. Take heed that you're never alone as well. And then lastly, take advantage that you're never alone. God is with us and wants to communicate with us. Always be praying, right? God wants that relationship with us, which takes communication. And so take advantage that God is there to listen to you, to answer. It's how he guides and directs us. Most often is through prayer and through his word. And so that's what his presence is there for, to guide us and protect us. David then moves on from God's presence, and he talks about God's power, his creative power. And he doesn't, once again, he doesn't just focus on God's creation of the universe, which is a miracle. David personalizes this. God, you've created me. And he marvels at God's power and his thought in the creation of man. Now, David begins this section of Scripture saying, it was you who created my inward parts. Now, look, the body is a miracle. It's a miracle of science, right? We all, I think, know that and would agree with that. But David, in talking about God creating his inward part, is not talking so much about the physical inward parts. The word there is actually for, means kidney in, in Hebrew. And so it's the word for kidney. And in the Hebrew culture, the kidney was used, kidneys were used to describe the center of our emotions, right? Our personality, our character. It was used to describe our being, right? And so we would, should think of this as you created my very soul and my spirit, God. You made me who I am, which is different from everybody. We all have bodies and there's a lot of similarities between our bodies, but we are each of us created uniquely by God. And it is that spirit 
that soul that he created that is in the image of God. So God is spirit. God doesn't have a body. Jesus says in John 4, chapter 4, God is spirit, and worshipers must worship him in spirit and truth. So a body isn't necessarily what is the image of God. It is who we are, right? A lot of people will say that it's your reasoning, it's your moral center, your ability to uh, determine right and wrong. And that, that's probably in that, but, but I think to a greater extent, it's how we reflect God. And we have the capability, being created in the image of God, to reflect God to the rest of the world. And I think all of that is part of God's creative work in our lives. But beyond that, David goes and talks about um, how you're remarkably made and wondrously made. Some translations say fearfully, and I really like that term better, actually. And that speaks to God's intentionality and his purpose in our creation. He didn't create us with a whim. There was always a plan. And David says that plan came, that plan came from eternity past right? You saw me when I was formless. My days were written in your book before a single one of them began. So before God created time itself, God thought about us, God knew each and every one of us, and he had plans for each and every one of us from eternity past. That, I think, is what blows David's mind more than anything. God, you had an individual plan for me. It's not just all of mankind. It's each and every one of us that this applies to, this truth about who God is and his omnipotence. So how do we respond to that? How do we respond to understanding and believing in the truth of God's power, his creative power, his creative thought, right? God thought and spoke the universe into existence, and he did the same for mankind. Well, I think one of the ways we can respond to this is understanding our value as an individual, our value as someone who's created in God's image. Now, the world will try to value us based on criteria that is irrelevant to God, right? What you look like, um, what's your net worth, um, how popular you are. There's all kinds of ways that the world values us and places value on us. And it's easy, even as a Christ follower, to, to fall into that trap, right? To not see the value that you have because we're focusing it on what the world says our value is. That's not how we should respond to the truth of God's creation of us. We should respond in a way that understands we have great value, a value and a thought from God before the existence of time. And not only are we created, and did God create us in a very particular, almost tedious way in his image, but he sent his son to die for us. He created us in his image, and he sent his son to die for us so that we could then be reconciled back to God that's our value. That's the value that God sees in each and every single one of us. So we need to recognize that value and act. Our actions and our thoughts, our worldview should come out of that understanding of God's value for us. But not just the value of ourselves. okay? We are to value ourselves, 
but we should also value one another in the same way. Once again, it's easy to fall into the trap of making a snap judgment of a person. You look differently than I do. Um, you talk differently than I do. Um, your hobbies are different than mine. We can fall into this trap of superficially valuing or devaluing one another, and we shouldn't do that. Our values of one another should be based on what we know to be true about God. The fact that God knows every single soul before it exists speaks volumes to what he values and how much he values. We're living in a society today. Um, I got to be careful how I say this. <laughs> the whole Roe versus Wade issue that we, that's been overturned and yet is still so divisive. Um, the world, the media would have us believe this is a political issue. Um, this is a, a woman's reproductive rights issue. That's all it, it is. And based on this scripture, this is a moral issue, folks. As a Christ follower, as a man who believes this is God's word, God's spoken word through David, this is what God thinks. This is what God values. If God values each and every soul before a single cell is formed, there's no argument for when a life is a life. It, it's, it becomes irrelevant. This is a moral issue. And as Christ followers, as people who believe God to be all-powerful, all-knowledgeable, ever-present, there's really no room for waffling on this, in my opinion. I'm not going to get political on this, but this is a moral biblical issue in my mind and I think as Christ followers we need to stand up and we need to align ourselves with where God is and that brings me to kind of summarizing David's response to what he knows God to be he knows God's is all-knowing and that God's knowledge protects him guides him provides for him he knows that God is ever-present and that God's presence is also there to protect him, to keep him on track, to guide him, to keep him obedient. And he knows that God created him with great eternal thought, a thought that never ends. David says, um, your thoughts are vast. When I wake up, I'm still with you. When we're not thinking about God, God's thinking about us. All of that, David boils down in this last section. And this is a section of scripture that has an apparent conflict with other scripture that we know. David is, this is an imprecatory prayer where David is, <laughs> David's calling on God to smite the wicked, essentially, right? He's saying, if only you would kill the wicked. Your enemies, they swear by you falsely. Don't I hate who you hate? Don't I hate who hate you? I detest those who rebel against you. What David is doing is David is aligning himself with God in all ways, fully aligning himself with God, which would naturally align him against the world. Again, I'm going to point back to Chris's message last week, differentiating 
between the things of God and the things of the world. There's a battle there. There's definitely a line there. And David hates the enemies of God. Now, this is tough because Jesus tells us to love our enemies. But I think it is possible to hate the character, the motivations of the heart, certainly the thoughts and the words and the actions of a person, and still love the soul, the spirit, created in the image of God. I believe Jesus did that. Who was Jesus's greatest enemy opponent during his life, his ministry here on earth? It was the, the Pharisees. It was the leaders of the Jewish faith were his greatest opponents, his greatest enemies. And I think the Bible clearly shows that Jesus quite often got very angry with them. Jesus hated what they preached, how they misled the people of Israel. He hated that part of them. He hated the motivations of their heart. And yet Jesus still loved each and every individual spirit created in the image of God. It is possible to hate what characterizes a person and love the spirit created in God's image. And I think that's what David's doing here. And, and the point, though, is David, without a doubt, aligns himself with God. And I think that's what we need to do. As we wrestle through this, as we wrestle through what you truly believe about God, what you truly believe to be true about God, we all of us need to make that decision. And it's not necessarily a one-time decision, right? We're called to die to ourselves every single day, take up our cross and follow Christ. This is an everyday, ongoing decision. God, I'm aligning with you. And if that puts me in enmity with the world, so be it. But that's what David does, and I believe that's what we need to do. We need to hate all that God hates, evil, sin. We need to hate that. And not just in the lives of others. And David clearly hates what's in his own heart. He says, test me. Know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me. Extricate it. Get rid of it. And lead me in the way everlasting. Lead me into righteousness. That's what David is saying. And I think we need to align ourselves in the same way with God. Now, I'm going to close this out by this, uh, or with this, excuse me, quote that I saw from probably one of my favorite theologians, C.A. Spurgeon. Um, and he says this. I, I was reading a totally different book of the Bible, and this was his commentary on, it's, I think it's First Chronicles chapter 5. This was his commentary on it. And he says this. Likewise, in religion, morals, and politics, we are on the side of the despised and rejected Christ to whom we belong. Here's the side of the learned. There's the side of the ignorant. We're on neither the one nor the other. We're on Christ's side. In every political question, we desire to be and ought to be on Christ's side. We're neither of this party nor of that, but we're on the side of justice, peace, and righteousness. In every moral question, we're bound to be on Christ's side. In every religious question, we're not on the side of the predominant thought, nor on the side of the fashionable views, nor on the side of dishonorable gain, but on the side of Christ. Make this our counsel. What would Jesus do? 
go and do that. How would Jesus think, go and think that? What would Jesus have me to be? Ask God to make us just that. Amen. Homework. Homework for this week, I'm going to leave it to what Spurgeon says here. Each of us ask the question, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus think? What would Jesus have me to be? Ask it every day, ask it often, and go and do that. Let's pray. Father, I just, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of your word, God. Um, I thank you for the truth of who you are, uh, that you know each and every one of us, that you thought of us before a single atom of creation came into being. You thought of us, God, you valued us, and you loved us, and you love us still. God, we're thankful for your mercy in our lives, God, as we, and you know this well, as we struggle with sin every day. God, help us to overcome it. Help us to be aware of your presence in our life. Help us to take advantage of your presence in our life, God. And help what we know to be true about you to impact the way that we view this world, the way that we interact with those who love you as well as those who hate you. God, let that guide us and direct us. And thank you, God, again for your, your son's sacrifice so that we could be reconciled back to you. God, we pray this in your son's name. Amen.